When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. I'm Alan Alda. And this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I'm aware that it's all very speculative, so I try to hold myself back, but I do find myself thinking about these hypothetical Venusians quite a lot. They will have horrible relationships with their neighbors over, you know, a couple of molecules of water. And they will struggle, and, and they will be witnessing their ever-shrinking envelope of habitability happen. And I think they will be witnessing the end of a living planet, because Venus used to be habitable. And so then my heart really breaks for them. That's Clara Sousa Silva, also known as Dr. Phosphine. Her research career studying an obscure molecule one of the most noxious molecules in the known universe, has suddenly placed her at the center of one of the most audacious claims in the history of science, that there is life in the clouds of Venus. This is going to be such a good conversation because I can't wait to talk to you about your discovery. You, The headline of this conversation is that you have found signs of life on Venus. Now, have you, have, have you found signs of life or have you detected what may be signs of life? More of the latter. So we have detected a strong signal from the only habitable place on Venus. And the most plausible explanation for that signal is phosphine. And we have tried our hardest to figure out how it could possibly be there without the intervention of life. And we have come up empty. We cannot explain the presence of phosphine in the clouds of Venus in any known geochemical or atmospheric way. And so as implausible as it sounds, um, the best explanation we have so far for the presence of phosphine in the cloud decks of Venus is life. So who would have guessed that the life that we find on the first planet where we think we found life is in the clouds. I would not have guessed it. I have been championing phosphine as a sign of life for a long, long time, many, many years. I've been studying phosphine for about a decade. And I was looking for phosphine as a sign of life in distant, exotic planets. I was imagining these you know, tropical wastelands <sighs> orbiting planets far away. And it was only because of Jane Greaves, who, who led this latest study of phosphine on Venus, and she was considering life on the clouds of Venus and life in other places in the solar system. And, and Jane had phosphine on her list and uh, of possible biomarkers. And she looked at Venus and saw it and contacted me because I've been shouting about phosphine as a great biosignature for years. But it was only this kind of combination of skills and drives that led to this extraordinary discovery. None of us on our own would have done it. So tell that story. That's Jane Greaves. Yes, Jane Greaves. Um, and you didn't know each other, right? No, we didn't. Apparently, we had been at a conference together many years ago when I was, I think, a first-year PhD student. 
And, and what prompted her to look for phosphine on Venus? Actually, it was a paper that we had both read that mentioned phosphine associated with penguin feces. So it seems like the intestines and excrements of, uh, of penguins have a lot of kind of a rich, have a rich, complex anaerobic world that is producing phosphine. And there was a, an article uh, released saying they found phosphine uh, above these kind of places where there's a lot of penguin poop. And and I I had found that paper and I had read through basically every peer-reviewed paper that mentioned phosphine, and I had collected this body of evidence for phosphine as a biosignature of anaerobic worlds on Earth, anaerobic ecosystems on Earth, and by association would be a good molecule to look for um, anaerobic life on other planets. And I had submitted that paper with what I thought was not a controversial conclusion that said, if you find phosphine on any terrestrial planet, it can only mean life. And I submitted (laughs) it, and it wasn't a big deal, of course, because it was very hypothetical. Um, But I went to lots of talks and conferences, and I pitched uh, for phosphine. I championed phosphine to you know, hundreds of bored audience members. Um, <laughs> but one of those, one of those, Paul Rimmer, uh, who's a mutual friend between uh, myself and Jane, he was talking to Jane about uh, her work and she had been looking for lots of potential biomarkers of which phosphine was one. And um, she mentioned finding it maybe on Venus and not knowing really what the kind of biosignature implications, the astrobiological implications of it would be. And Paul said, I know who you should talk to. So Jane emailed me to say, "Um, you're the phosphine expert. I hear you're looking at it as a biosignature. I think I found it on Venus. Is that weird? I think it's weird. Um, I'm paraphrasing here. And I very quickly replied with, yes, it's very weird, extremely weird. Are you absolutely sure? Because it's either I'm very wrong or... This is a really big deal. And that it was must a, have been amazing to have <laughs> oh that God. email show up in your inbox. It was incredible. I felt like my blood froze and boiled all at once. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt so proud of my little molecule, you know, and it was really nice. And yes, I thought that maybe it would be nothing, but I thought for a second, if it was something, this would be so extraordinary. And I, I felt this flush of happiness. And I replied very quickly, and that was a year and a half. And we spent that time, our collaboration, trying to confirm that it is phosphine, trying to explain it in any other way with a a very large and extremely talented international team. So I know it came as a surprise when a month ago the discovery broke, but we have been dealing with this secret for a long time. You're the queen of phosphine, I think, the, the world's expert on phosphine. I even your, I love your Twitter handle, Dr. Phosphine. Yes, that's true. <laughs> when I was doing my PhD, I was doing it with the ExoMol group in London. And each of us, each student had to focus on a single molecule important for astrophysical discoveries. And so I spent my entire PhD working on phosphine. And I would go to conferences and people would say, are you Miss Phosphine? And I would say, yes, I am, but soon I'll have my PhD and I'll be Dr. Phosphine. And that's how it came to be. So there's something I don't really understand about phosphine. Actually, there are probably several hundred thousand things I don't understand about it. But the one at the head of the line is, as I've heard phosphine described, it's a gas, right? And it's a lethal gas, which was even used in World War I as a, as a military weapon. 
How could something so lethal be a sign of life? Well, if you smell it, you probably will die. So you actually don't even want to smell it. That's how awful it is. How do we know what it smells like? <laughs> there are very few <laughs> records of people who smelt it and lived to tell the tale. But, and most of the smell actually comes from the impurities around it. And, and the descriptions are really quite vivid that it smells like fishy, garlicky death. Um, I think someone described it as smelling like the rancid diapers of the spawn of Satan. So very vivid imagery. But just because it's unpleasant to us doesn't mean it's unpleasant to other life forms. We have evolved to avoid things that are bad for us, and phosphine is one of those things. Um, but other life finds different ecosystems pleasant than we do. And even on Earth, the life that produces phosphine is life that doesn't care for oxygen and doesn't use oxygen. While for us, oxygen is very important, really crucial for our existence. So I think the idea that this is a disgusting molecule is in the eye of the beholder, of <laughs> the besmeller. <laughs> it's bad for us, but we would smell terrible to them. And so part of my work is trying to avoid this kind of human-centric attitude to alien life. It, it's like a person who studies sharks and falls in love with them. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, understandable too. So it, it sounds like you're saying that the life that possibly or probably exists on in the clouds of Venus is not aerobic life. It doesn't use oxygen the way life on Earth does, or most life. There's, there is anaerobic life on Earth too, right? There is, yes. And that life produces phosphine in rather large quantities. It was one of the reasons that my work proposed phosphine as a good biosignature, it was because it was such a popular sign of life on Earth, as long as it was for life that doesn't care for oxygen, which, of course, it's very much in the shadows of the world um, because we have such an oxygen-rich planet, which is lovely for us, but not lovely for the rich ecosystems that exist that don't like um, oxygen. And so I did propose it as a biosignature on oxygen-poor distant worlds. Obviously, I failed to think of Nextdoor as one of the really good opportunities for it. So let me ask you about the clouds of Venus, where it's much cooler, right? It's a, isn't it like 800 degrees on the surface of Venus, but around 80 degrees Fahrenheit in the clouds? A hot summer. Yeah, it's not so bad. But where's the phosphine coming from? Are little animals producing it or what? Well, the short answer is we don't know. Um, but we certainly don't know of anything other than life that could be making it. If it is life, it would have to survive in the clouds for its entire lifespan. So it can never go to the surface. So it has to be a 100% aerial biosphere. And we know this is plausible because on Earth there are plenty of life forms that spend the majority of their times, uh, time in the clouds and they don't really have to. On Earth, the surface is temperate. So it's not a big leap to imagine in a planet where only the clouds are habitable that life will have adapted to spend all of its time there. You mentioned life in clouds on Earth. I don't think I ever heard that before. What, what life is in our clouds? And only in our clouds? Is that the idea? It stays up there by itself and doesn't mix with us? I don't think any life on Earth stays exclusively in the clouds, but 
several kind of very small microbes, but also bigger animals like birds manage to spend the majority of their lifetime in, in the clouds. So I think swallows have an, a very impressive uh, range of their lifetime that they spend in the air, making use of currents and, and temperature differences to glide and float without ever having to make it down, make all the way down. And this is on Earth. Wait, they don't have to. They can come to the surface. And um, so this is an argument for the plausibility of a completely aerial biosphere. So would this life have to have the ability of locomotion? Would it be, in effect, flying in the clouds, or is, would it be so so tiny that it could just live its life blowing around with whatever winds may be there? We don't know. Um, both are possible. It could be a, a gliding life or a floating life or a flying life. Um, we don't know. I can't wait to find out. How will you find out? So that's complicated. Um, there are many steps to be taken. This was you know, the preliminary step in a really big discovery. But we first have to confirm unambiguously that it is in fact phosphine by finding other evidence of it um, in different regions of the electromagnetic spectrum. And if we then confirm it as phosphine, we have to map its distribution really carefully to see how a possible aerial biosphere is behaving. Does it react to sunlight? Does it change in the seasons? Is it uh, more present in the equator than in the poles? So all of this will give us information on how life might be going about its business. And then we need to look for other signs of this ecosystem. If it is there, it won't just be producing phosphine. On Earth, we produce thousands of molecules uh, together in uh, this complex ecosystem that the planet Earth is. So we would expect the same for Venus, and looking for those would be the next step. Is the way you discovered the phosphine through examining the spectral signature of that molecule? And would you, for anybody who's a little hazy about what that is, would you explain what it is, how you do it? Of course. Yes, when you consider a kind of white light, you may kind of imagine it as a, as a very pure source of, um, of energy. But actually, white light can be broken up into its full electromagnetic spectrum. So all the colors of the rainbow and all the invisible colors beyond it in the infrared and in the ultraviolet. And when light goes through a gas, the molecules within that gas will absorb select points of that electromagnetic spectrum. So uh, if it absorbs in the optical, it'll absorb specific colors of the rainbow. And by knowing which colors each molecule absorbs, you can see uh, what molecules must have been present in the gas that the light went through. So we can do that with Venus as well. We, we can do that with the sun and any of the lights you see in your night sky. I spent my whole PhD figuring out exactly how phosphine interacted with light, and I calculated 16.8 billion ways in which phosphine interacts with light. So 16.8. What, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? It's 16.8 billion colors of the rainbow that only phosphine absorbs. Um, every molecule has its own kind of unique spectral fingerprint, and they're very complex. And one of those 16.8 billion spectral features is one that we found on the clouds of Venus. What kind of a device do you look into to get, to get that? I'm curious about what the actual physical reality is. So all my work was done on supercomputers, but it was calibrated by work done by spectroscopes. So um, instruments that can take light and crack it open into its full spectrum. 
And if you do that with the light that has gone through different molecules, you'll see the unique spectral fingerprint for each one of them. And we can do this in the lab, though this is often expensive and dangerous when it comes to things like phosphine. And part of the reason I like doing this on supercomputers is because we can simulate any environment that that gas can be in. And so planets are very hot or very cold or uh, very high pressure. And in the lab, it's hard to come up with every type of hypothetical planet that you could consider. I'm wondering if, if, as you think about this, you must imagine life in the clouds of Venus a lot during the day. You must ask yourself a lot of questions about it. And one of the questions that's in my mind, and I wonder if you've thought about this, is would you expect whatever life is in the clouds, if it's really there, would you expect it to have evolved and keep evolving? And would it have produced a number of different species and as life on Earth has? Yes, I, I do think about them a lot. I'm aware that it's all very speculative, so I try to hold myself back, but I do find myself thinking about these hypothetical Venusians quite a lot. Um, and I think the answer to your question depends on the answer to another question, which is, are they biochemically similar to us or not? Now, if they're not biochemically similar to us, then maybe they don't find the fact that the Venusian clouds are highly acidic and extremely dry a problem, the way life on Earth would very much find a problem. Maybe they have learned to adapt to that environment and they have developed some level of complexity that allows them to experience their habitat without much pain. And then I wonder about things like they look up and they just see haze. They don't know of their night sky. When we look up and we see Venus, we can wander, but they don't get to do the same thing because they don't get any stars. It's too hazy. So maybe they don't have eyes. And maybe they don't have eyes, exactly. They don't have an ability to perceive light the way we do. But at least then I can imagine some you know, happiness for them. When I do think about the possibility that they're biochemically similar to us, then it is much more tragic because if they're anything like us, they will hate being surrounded by sulfuric acid and they will be desperate for the few molecules of water that are few and far between. They would fight for them, probably. They will have horrible relationships with their neighbors over, you know, a couple of molecules of water and they will struggle and, and they will be witnessing their ever-shrinking envelope of habitability happen and I think they will be witnessing the end of a living planet because Venus used to be habitable. And so then my heart really breaks for them. You've not only discovered life, you have an apocalyptic view of it already. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like a, n a number of points in that are mimicking what we go through, fighting for resources and that kind of thing. And that may be all, uh, true all over the universe. Who, who knows? Absolutely. And Venus used to be habitable for a long time until about 600 million years ago. But now nothing can survive on the surface. And so it was only through a runaway greenhouse effect that this has happened, that now it's this tiny sliver of the atmosphere that is still habitable, a little on the nose comparisons to the Earth and uh, the, the, the runaway greenhouse effect we may find ourselves in very soon. When we come back, I ask Clara Sousa Silva if finding possible signs of life in such an improbable place as the clouds of Venus 
suggests to her that life could be everywhere in the universe. Right after this. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. But you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Clara Sousa Silva. I'm interested in the definitions of life. Apparently, one factor that seems important to a lot of people who define life is the ability to reproduce. Another is to consume something and have energy to use. I forget what the third one is. Reproduce, and it's also evolve or adapt oh to evolve yes that's that's the third so are you only guided by the fact that they're emitting a gas and that is giving you a sign of life but you don't have it doesn't seem possible that you have the other signs of life no the definitions of life are you know very controversial and people still argue about it in astrobiology and in the origins of life field I try to be as unbiased as I can within the limitations of being a, you know, a human astronomer on Earth. And so it's hard to not be human-centric and Earth-centric. And in trying to be unbiased as much as possible, one of the things that I consider is I only take that one category. So I don't expect any life that might exist on any planet in the universe to be 100% efficient, because we don't have many 100% efficient systems. And so it's inevitable that any life, no matter how strange it might be, must have to make use of resources around it and not be completely efficient with them. And what that means is something is going to come out. 
And that, that metabolite, I'm considering the only criteria for life, at least for my search of life. And phosphine is one of those metabolites, but my old group at MIT, we came up with 16,367 gases, of which one is phosphine, that life anywhere could be producing and releasing into the atmosphere. So most of my time I actually spend looking for all of those. Are some of them waste products or or or, or most of them? What what are you what are you guessing? A lot of them are waste products. Uh, a lot of them are perf- purposefully released for signaling, for example. But they're all molecules that life seems to be able to create and release into the atmosphere. So they are molecules that are not just produced by life for some purpose, but also volatile. So they can rise up in the atmosphere to a place where I could detect them from here. Mm. And so that's my criteria. There, there are the how many? 13,000 and some... Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Sixteen thousand three hundred and sixty-seven. These are these are molecules that would be released by something living. Yes. Now, to to decide that it really is alive, do you want to have a a preponderance of those those molecules, or are you just satisfied with one or two? No, you definitely want a village because a lot of these molecules can be produced by life, but could also be produced by volcanoes or tectonic plates or oceans interacting with radicals in the atmosphere. And so detecting most of these molecules in isolation wouldn't necessarily mean life because they all have false positives for life. One of the reasons phosphine, one of the reasons phosphine is quite so special is because it has very low false positives for life. It's so hard to make that on terrestrial planets, we can't even come up with alternative methods of creation beyond life. But other molecules that are lovely biosignatures in many ways, like water or methane or uh, oxygen, can be produced in many non-biological ways. So that's one of the ways of ranking these 16,367. But most of my time, I push for considering not just one molecule, but considering the whole picture of a biosphere. If an alien astronomer had looked at the Earth uh, and saw oxygen, I'm sure they would have got excited, but they wouldn't have really got excited until they saw oxygen together with methane. Those two together, the ratios that we find them, shouldn't really be here. And so it's a pretty robust sign of life. And at that point, I'm sure that alien astronomer would keep on looking and find all of the other trace gases in our atmosphere and and paint this three-dimensional picture of a rich, complex, living world. So my professional goal is to do that to any other potential alien biosphere. Why is it so hard to make phosphine? And if it's so hard, how did they use it in World War I? <laughs> so it's hard to make it spontaneously, but human ingenuity is very powerful. And if something can be used as a weapon, we will put the effort in to, to uh. make it, sadly. But, but phosphine is hard to make because the phosphorus atoms and the hydrogen atoms don't really get along. Um, phosphorus much rather be bonded to oxygen. And that's uh, a, lot of the, the, a lot of the forms that phosphorus species are found on Earth. And hydrogen has much better things to do, like binding with carbon to make methane or with oxygen to make water. And so these, these elements are not natural friends. And you need to put a lot of energy into a system to convince them to bind into a, a molecule like phosphine. So even on Jupiter and Saturn, the only reason we see phosphine is because it gets made in the hellish depths where it's so hot and there's so much hydrogen pressure 
that phosphine can be made and then gets dredged up from these depths to the top of the atmospheres where we see it. Otherwise, we wouldn't even see it in places like Jupiter and Saturn, and they're much more extreme than the environments we find on terrestrial planets like Earth or Venus. Have you arrived at the conclusion that there's probably life everywhere in the universe? If indeed we got it right and there's life on Venus, a planet so different from Earth, then yes, life must be extremely common because it would be the height of hubris to think that not only is life only on Earth, but it's only on Earth and next door, but nowhere else in the galaxy. You know, we know our sun isn't special. We know the the elemental makeup of our solar system isn't special. So at which point do we say we are special? Well, I say we don't. I say we're not special. If life can arise in planets as different as Earth and Venus, life can arise in everywhere in the universe. And there must be thousands, billions of planets out there with life forms. Life must be inevitable. So this does fill me with hope. You've been spending years, I believe you said, looking for life on exoplanets, life on planets revolving around stars many, many light years away. Have you been lucky in your fishing expedition at all? No, and I haven't. Uh, it's very, it's only very recently that we've even known there are planets around other stars. And only in the last few years that we've been able to look at those atmospheres and we barely have the technology to detect molecules in those atmospheres. So most of my work, although it is with the ultimate goal of looking for life, it's very much on the fundamental side of developing the toolkit to know life if we see it. So know exactly how each molecule that life could produce would interact with light so that when we do eventually point our telescopes at the atmosphere of a potentially inhabited planet, that we know what we're looking at. Because currently, we do not have that toolkit. We don't have the spectral signature for, I think, 96% of those 16,367 signs of life. I guess most of us when we think about the possibility of life on other planets, go right to the idea that there might be intelligent life on other planets. And we really only have an example of one that we can draw our inference on. Have you thought about the odds for there being intelligent life, not just everywhere, but anywhere else? I am not immune to the charms of the notion of, you know, meeting an intelligent alien that I'm able to communicate with, that I can empathize with. Um, but I, I do know that on Earth, we've had billions of species evolving in a variety of ways in a huge array of ecosystems. And we've only had one barely intelligent species amongst them all. And so I feel like it would be an exercise in heartbreak if the majority of my research was looking for that one needle in a haystack, even on Earth. While life itself seems inevitable, intelligence does not. And so I don't spend most of my time looking for signs that life meant to make. I look for signs that life didn't mean to make, like what happens when we breathe. Mm. I think it would be wonderful if you or somebody could discover intelligent life on Earth. <laughs> Still working on that.
what first interested you in astronomy, in looking up into the heavens? Well, I, I've wanted to be an astrophysicist for a really long time, but it's not quite as far back as I remember because I do know the exact moment where I decided to become an astronomer. And that's when I was watching a solar eclipse around age 12. And my parents, who are lovely, and my mom, who was lovely, and uh, although lovely, she was very bad at timing. She was not a punctual woman and not a precise woman, and very clever, but not precise. And she was giving me all these exact timings for all the minor events of the eclipse, you know, when it would start, when it would reach the apex. And she was telling me, you know, at 1.11 and at 12.17 and all these exact timings. And I, I thought it was so strange that my mom was talking like this and I didn't believe for a second it would come true. And then it did. I watched it happen exactly as my mom said it would. And it just seemed incredible. How could she know the movements of the heavens like this with such precision? And my mom in particular, who's so bad with time. And my parents explained to me that, you know, this was a job um, that astronomers had and they had figured it out and they just read the news and the, the papers that told them when things would happen. And, and I just wanted that power so much. And I spent the rest of my life trying to get it, trying to know how the heavens move without leaving the earth. So it was a really incredible moment for me and for my parents, I'm sure. So the news came out that there, there's possibly life on Venus, and this is an entry into another world for you. You, you had been working quietly on phosphine for years, and now suddenly it's the molecule of life in the universe. Your exposure to the world, to the public exploded recently. What's that been like for you? Mostly surreal, but I'm filled with pride for my little molecule, and so it's nice to hear that it's in everybody's lips. But I'm sure I'll go into obscurity very soon after. There, there, there will be many, many news already has that can throw shadow uh, across the, this discovery so it's been a strange time to talk to journalists and to have people contact me who didn't know me. But it mostly has been really nice to hear from, you know, my dad that people have called him up and say, oh, I remember Clara when she was little. And, and that has been a nice side of things. But I'm sure I will be in my comfortable obscurity very soon again. Except for all the little animals floating around on Venus who were saying to one another, look, look, she found us. <laughs> we thought phosphine was safe and turns <laughs> out. <laughs> you know, I just remembered something I really wanted to ask you about if we have a minute. I get the impression that you're very concerned with and spend a good deal of time on inspiring young people to be interested in science. And uh, especially girls, I get the impression. Could you tell me about the the work you do in that area? Of course, yes. As I as I kind of moved up the ranks in astronomy, I I was very excited about the new depths of the work that I was able to do. But I became increasingly disappointed with the narrow demographics of my field. Um, and the further up I got, the worse it got. And so I I've put a lot of effort um, in trying to make science a more inclusive world and more diverse world. 
for girls, but really every other underrepresented group. And so I do a lot of outreach programs. I started doing these when I was still doing my PhD. Um, the first program I did was called Orbits, or Original Research by Young Twinkle Students, because it was part of the Twinkle Space Mission, a tiny, tiny satellite. And in it, we got students to do original research um, with junior scientists that I coordinated. And it was incredible to see these high school kids being able to participate quite actively in original research. In fact, several of these kids are now my co-authors. They're, they're co-authors in, in peer-reviewed papers that we published with their tiny little high schools as official institutions right next to MIT and Harvard. And it's been incredible to see the research kids can do if you just let them and provide them you know, basic training. And this means these kids are really invested in how science turns out. And I think they'll really change the face of science. I think that the greatest discoveries in astronomy are not going to be done with the next generation of telescopes. They're going to be done with the next generation of people who join astronomy and make it better. So that's what most of my efforts go into, trying to do science, but doing it with anyone young who wants to join the cause, because there are, what, 300 billion stars in the galaxy orbiting them, at least a planet each, but probably more. So there's got to be billions of potentially habitable planets releasing thousands of potential molecules, and I cannot do this on my own. So I know that for the work that I want to see done to be done, it crucially needs um, a buy-in from the next generation. I think we're nearing the end of our time, and we, we always end our shows with seven quick questions. Okay. They're, they're, they're vaguely about communication. Um, first question, what do you wish you really understood? Quantum mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, but you got a head start. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? I'm quite poor at that. I try to bring citations, um, but I, I often struggle with that. I've only just became somewhat um, active on Twitter because of this discovery. And every time someone criticized my work, I would, you know, say, oh, that's a, a totally normal thing to think. And here's a, a, a citation for why you're wrong. And no one wanted to interact with me on that level. And so I'm <laughs> I know I'm doing it wrong, but I don't know how to do it right. Okay, well, third question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Uh, since this discovery has broken, people have asked me if I'm part of a global cover-up uh, for alien life. Um, so that, that was a strange question because I'm not trying to cover anything up. Uh, so I'm pretty transparent with my work. But can you show me the secret handshake? <laughs> I would have to kill you. Oh, <laughs> second person in a month who's told me that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, how, do, how do you stop a compulsive talker? I'm not sure. I just watched the presidential debate and I don't think I could have done any better. So I, I don't. I don't think I stopped them. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table when there were dinner tables and when there may be one again, and you're sitting next to someone you don't know, how do you strike up a real conversation with that person? 
Um, I sometimes throw dinner parties and I have a little uh, card in front of everyone that has a highbrow, midbrow and lowbrow topics for them to uh, engage in. Oh, if, that's great. <laughs> if they're out of conversation and that's been a hit in the past. Just briefly, what are the, th- give me examples of the three categories. Oh, so it would be things like, uh, what do you think of the hegemony of capitalist societies? Uh, and then what do you think of the latest Jonathan Franzen novel? And then what's your favorite Miley Cyrus song? <laughs> I think you, you got me. I, I, I'd be silent on at least two of those. But that's, that's fine. You only need one to strike but a conversation. But what if I'm sitting next to someone who's only into number three? Then, fortunately, there's someone on either side of you, so everything will be okay. <laughs> well, I love the idea. What gives you confidence? Oh, in general? Yeah, or, yeah. My parents. My parents oh. gave me confidence, and, and so I, I take that with me. Last question. What book changed your life? Contact by Carl Sagan. That's great. This has been a lovely conversation. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Alan. I would love for it to go on for hours more, but I know you have to go somewhere. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid, up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Clara Sousa Silva is a research scientist in the Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Department at MIT. The colleague she referred to in our conversation is Professor Jane Greaves of Cardiff University in Wales. The Twinkle satellite is a planned seven-year mission to detect molecules that may indicate life on other planets beyond the solar system. And you can find out more about Clara at clarasusasilva.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Alan Zweibel, a man who's devoted himself to a lifetime in a special department of communication, helping funny people be funnier. I was like about 12 years old when the Dick Van Dyke show came on, and here was this good-looking guy married to this very pretty Mary Tyler Moore. They had a kid, Richie, so they had a family. 
had a very nice house in New Rochelle, and he spent his days at work lying on a couch, joking around with Buddy and Sally. So I said to my parents, I want to do that. <laughs> That's, that, that seems like a good way to spend your day, okay? And your life. Alan's Zweibel, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>